Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks for know and recognize this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, as well, because we recognize that apart from you doing a work in our hearts, we are all idolaters. But God, thank you for opening our eyes to see, opening our ears to hear the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would be with Pastor Jeff and speak boldly through him and have your spirit apply it to our hearts. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome, everyone. Thank you, Ryan, for the reading this morning. Well, we just read from Ephesians 5, 1 through 5. We are talking about the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 19. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 19, and we're going to actually be looking at the historical account of the radical, complete transformation, not only of the Ephesian church, people who become believers, but of Asia, of Asia, because of the power of the gospel. Uh, living and working a few years ago in the Spokane, Washington area, uh, pretty much everyone at our church up there in Spokane Valley were Seahawks fans, uh, Seattle Seahawks fans. And if those of you are nodding your head, amen. And so when we, were, we lived up there, uh, at the time, the Seahawks had their training camp in Spokane. So people there were just really kind of nuts about the Seahawks, and they were doing really well. And I think it was Super Bowl, was it 48 is the one they won, right? Super Bowl 48. They won that Super Bowl against Denver handily, like so easily, and it was great. We were like, well, obviously, we're the greatest team ever in the history of ever. Now, Carrie and I were at a Super Bowl party where they won that game, and there was just, when they won that game and they won the Super Bowl, it was just elation. It was just joy. It was just a, a spirit of celebration in that party of about 30 or 40 people were there at that house from, from our church and some friends from the neighborhood. And then uh, the next year, they played the New England Patriots uh, in Super Bowl 49 and didn't do so well. Uh, matter of fact, it was a real nail-biter nail of a game. If you watched it and you remember it, just so you recall, uh, <clears throat> what the Seahawks like to do is to come back from behind. That's the way they always play. And so there we are, the same 30 or 40 people at this party, and they have intercepted the ball near the goal line. And then Marshawn Lynch drives it right to the goal line. And the very next play, they pass it and fail. The clock runs out, and they have lost the Super Bowl. Now, that same group of people, if talk about deflation, no pun intended, right? Because that was deflate gate that year. Everybody was really angry at Tom Brady for deflating the footballs, and everybody was just looking at someone to just charge their, that voltage of their anger toward, and it was just, you saw guys with red faces and clenched fists, and men who looked like they were going to cry. Now, in that moment, if I had said, as their pastor, everyone, listen, I want us to bow our heads, close your eyes, 
We're going to pray a prayer of confession and repentance, and we're going to join the, the New England Patriots uh, fans, right? From this point forward, we're going to be New England Patriots people. I'm pretty sure I would have left the house that day on a stretcher. <laughs> like, I would have left at least with a few bandages on my face, okay? So now you think of your, any allegiance that you have. You think of any team, uh, any political party, anything, any ideology that you hold uh, apart from Christ, where you hold, you, that's, you're a fan. And someone would say, that person, that guy, he's a Pittsburgh fan, or that guy, he's a Cowboys fan. You think of that. Now, that commitment, that allegiance is a fraction, is infinitesimally small. It is a fraction compared to the way the Ephesians felt about their goddess, Artemis. Artemis is their patron goddess. And this false idol, Artemis, uh, is being worshipped by all of the nations within Asia. And this false, godimus, uh, godimus, this false goddess is known as Artemis of the Ephesians. When you see her name minted in coins, when you uh, see inscriptions about this goddess in the ancient world that archaeologists have dug up, when you see that name from the ancient world, it's Artemis of the Ephesians because this is their patron goddess. This fertility goddess, I don't know if you, uh, I'm going to put up a picture here so you can see a picture of her. Have you guys seen that yet? Yep, there she is. The many-breasted fertility goddess of Artemis. So you could probably surmise what their worship was all about. For Paul to be preaching that the gospel of Jesus has come to Asia, the gospel of Jesus has come to this world, to this territory, and that Jesus is your God Jesus is the Son of God and the new King, well, that would have just caused a riot. And indeed, in this text, it does. Artemis' fame is transferred to the people. You think about uh, any city who has a team that wins the Super Bowl. The fame of that team, vicariously, is transferred to the city. So a great disturbance in verses 23 and 27 has broke out in Asia concerning the Christian faith. A man named Demetrius, or Demetrius as we call him, a silversmith, who made silver statuettes, these little statuettes and shrines of Artemis, enriched the artisan class of Ephesus. Now, archaeologists have found, have discovered two massive statues uh, very near the theater that we're going to read about today. Dozens of figurines, silver figurines of Artemis, shrines, fountains, multiple inscriptions, her image stamped on coins throughout the Roman Empire. In the late 1800s, an Ephesus inscription was discovered that dates back to the middle of the first century, just about the time we're reading today in Acts chapter 19. And the man Demetrius, his name is in that inscription. It is a list of guildsmen, a list of merchants who have come together and they have called themselves the guardians of the temple. And that is the man we're reading about today. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that Demetrius sought to guard the temple against what he perceived to be an assault on their religious system and more specifically an assault on their financial system because his entire system of finance is uh, and their economy was based in this wicked idolatry. And it was a circulation economy. In other words, what the silversmiths would do is they would create these little silver statuettes. 
they would create these little silver figurines, and when they would have these Artemis festivals, and many people from surrounding regions and towns would pour into the city, they would sell them, they would sell them to the residents there, and then you would take your figurine to the temple, and they would melt it down in front of you, and that was your offering. Then the priests would take the silver and recirculate it, sell it back to the merchants, and they would do it all over again. So this is a racket, ancient racketeering. So today the text is going to give us some keys to help identify and destroy false idols. How do we discern the presence of idols in our life? Uh, Demetrius tells us, I think accurately, what the threat to the business of idol making was in the region. Here it is, verses 26 and 27. It says, when you, and you see, this is him speaking, and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying, the gods made with hands are not gods. Imagine that. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence she whom all Asia and the world worship. So what we learn in this passage, he is not wrong. He, he is more right than he knows, is that the gospel is always at odds with our gods. Sorry to get all Dr. Seuss on you there, but it does rhyme. I mean, the gospel is at odds with our gods. The gospel is at odds with the idols that we worship. They're absolutely incompatible Verse 26a, it says, Paul has persuaded, he says, and turned away a great many. Yes, he has. That's right, because that's what the gospel does. What the good news of salvation in Jesus does is it turns us away from those things that we would worship that are not gods at all. And when the people of Ephesus received Jesus, God's one and only son, when the people of Ephesus received Jesus, God's son, king, they were persuaded to abandon anything else they would worship in his absence. Next, Demetrius observes that the gospel posed a danger to their gods. The gospel posed a danger to their gods. Verse 27a says, and there is a danger, he says, that she may be even deposed, which means overthrown, and the magnificence of her glory taken away. (laughs) Yes, that's what the good news of Jesus does. It reclaims God's glory for God. It reclaims the glory that is due God alone for him. In The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe, Susan Pevensey discovers that Aslan is actually not a man, he's a lion. And so she says to a talking beaver, right? So she's talking to a beaver. I think his name is Mr. Beaver. And she's appropriately named. She says, uh, I should rather be nervous to meet a lion. Is he safe? To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's good, but he's not safe. You see, the gospel is good news, but it's not safe news. The gospel is good news, but it is not safe for anything other than God that you and I would direct our attention, our affections, and our worship to. And Demetrius knows this. Demetrius, as a good pagan idol worshiper, knows that the gospel is dangerous to this system. Next, Demetrius admits the gospel revealed idolatry to be disgraceful and worthless. The the gospel reveals idolatry to be exactly what it is. It's actually a disgraceful practice, and it's a worthless practice. 
Demetrius is a prophet. He's unaware. He doesn't know he's prophesying. He says this, and and there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, disgrace, but also that the temples of the great goddess Artemis may, may be counted as nothing. What he could not know in this moment that he says this is that just a few hundred years, Artemis, the cult that controls and has captured the imagination of those in Asia, everyone in Asia, will disappear in the sands of history. And today, historians and archaeologists are digging artifacts of it up. That's how far it has gone. And Christianity, I think it's doing well. I think since then, the Christian faith has done well for itself. The fact of the matter is that when the gospel comes to town, when Jesus comes to town, idols go away. That's the way it's supposed to be. Because the gospel reveals just how disgraceful and worthless worshiping anything other than God really is. So what is idolatry? We're going to do two things today. We're going to answer the question, what is idolatry and and how do we discern it in our lives? And then what do we do about it? What do we do about it? But before we understand idolatry, we first have to understand the nature of God. We first have to get some idea in our minds of what and who God is. The little definition of God, this one uh, I like. I, I came up with this. It's, I think it's super great. Um, God is the infinite personal creator of the universe. God is the infinite personal creator of the universe. All three of those words are necessary. Why? Because God is infinite. He's not finite. God is eternal. He's everlasting. He didn't come into being. God is the infinite God of the universe who transcends space and time and matter. But God is also personal. God's nature is the very definition of what it means to be loving, to be kind, to be compassionate, to be just. And so God is infinitely personal, and God is the creator of all things. God alone has the moniker, has the title of being the creator who has brought all things into existence. Nothing has been made without Him. Nothing that has been made was made apart from God's creational authority. So God is the infinite personal creator of the universe. You can also think of God as the maximally greatest possible being. Stole this from Anselm, of course. Uh, maximally greatest possible being. Think of every good attribute that you, every good attribute that you can think of relative to God. God holds that attribute to its infinite degree, which means that when it comes to goodness, the quality of goodness, if you could think of a being that was more good than God, that would be God. God is the maximally greatest possible imaginable being. Okay? That is God. So, what is idolatry? Well, idolatry happens firstly at the belief level. Idolatry happens firstly at the belief level. Idolatry is the false belief. It's a false belief system. It's a system of belief. It's an operating system. Sometimes we're unaware of it. That something or someone possesses attributes that belong to God alone. So, when it comes to these attributes that characterize God as maximally great, When it comes to these attributes that characterize God as being the infinite personal creator of the universe, if God is the only one who has those attributes and you think someone else does, that's idolatry. It's believing that someone is God that isn't God. It's believing that something like a statue, like Artemis' statue that isn't God, is God. It's not. I'll give you three examples. The first one would be world religions. 
world religions that attribute the work of creation to a pantheon or group of gods, Hinduism, Shintoism, uh, Wicca, Druidism, Taoism, various types of animism, spiritualism, the new paganism that's emerging within American culture, if you can believe that. All of these religions attribute divine qualities to things that are not God. And that, at, at essence, is idolatry, because is, is believing something that isn't God is God. Example number two would be evolutionary lectures, uh, evolutionary biologists. And by evolutionary biologists, I mean those who hold to a neo-Darwinian view of the, of the development of the world which says that all life has arisen as a process, as a result of natural, purely natural, undirected processes. Now, if you hold the view that all life on earth has arisen, is the result of purely natural and undirected processes, that's idolatry. And so there's a guy right now, he's a scientist, he's a biologist, uh, he has a podcast, I listen to it almost on a daily basis because he's a neurobiologist and he talks about body chemistry and he's absolutely brilliant. He's just one of the most brilliant people I've ever listened to. I just take copious notes while listening to the podcast. But very often he very unintentionally, I think he doesn't mean to do it, but he will replace the word God for evolution or place, replace the word God for nature. And he will just say, well, evolution created it this way. No, evolution did not. Evolution is cognitively effete which means it doesn't have a brain. It does have, not have any designing intention, no designing motivation. There is one God who designed the world and one God who holds that title. Now, theologians and scientists debate all the time the degree to which evolution has occurred in nature, but I want to say that if we replace anything, uh, anything with uh, a God for anything else as the creator, that is, in essence, idolatry. Example number three would be individuals who claim to be the ultimate authority of their own lives. Welcome to America. Like, welcome to our culture. This is our culture. Now, if you were raised in a culture where that is not true, this probably is not your problem as much. You might have some of the other examples going on in your life. But individuals who claim to be the ultimate supreme authority on matters of truth. Now, I'm going to pick on this one not because of its vitality, not because it's the most vital one, uh, but because it's one of the most pronounced ones in our culture today. A vanishingly small number of people actually deal with gender dysphoria. A vanishingly small percentage of people have some genetic wiring where they are dealing with gender issues, okay? The rest of everybody who wakes up every day and just decides, I'm going to be a she today instead of a he, uh, you don't have the right to do that. You don't have the right to do that. And I can think of two arguments to tell you why you don't have the right to, do, to choose your gender. Okay? I can think of two. The first one would be, obviously, biological. If you are a male, you do not have female biology. You do not have female genetics. <clears throat> you do not have female chromosomes. Your endocrine system is very vastly different. Your skeletal, muscular system is very much not the same. Your twitch muscle, muscle fibers do not work the same. Just about everything about you, your anatomy is very different. I think you all probably know that by now, especially those of you who are married. So when it comes to your physicality, your biology, if you are a male, you are not a female. Now, if you want to come up to me and say, well, you know what, today I feel like a female, then my question for you would be, what is a female? What is a female? 
well, I just feel like one. Well, what is it? What does it mean apart from biology, apart from genetics, apart from anatomy, apart from your chromosomes and your endocrine system, what does it mean to be a female? What are the attributes of femaleness? What are they? Just tell me what they are, and then we can have a discussion. Because until you can answer that question, it's an incoherent statement to say that I am a female if you were born a biological male. Now, the second argument is biblical. It's scriptural. And this is the one that has authority. Genesis 1.26 says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness. And they, the man and the woman, will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, everything, and the creatures that crawl on earth. So God created mankind in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. And then what did he do? Verse 28, do not miss this verse. God blessed them. What does God bless? What does God put his hand on? God says, I bless this because this is what I made. God, by design and by decree, is the only person who has the authority to determine what your function, what your purpose, and what your identity is. As the creature, you and I do not have that authority. As the person that God has made, as the thing that God has made, God alone has the authority to tell you who and what you are and what you were made for. God alone has the right, by design and by decree, to to determine our purpose, our function, and our identity. And so at the moment I say, well, I have the right to determine that. Like, I have the right to show up at the L.A. training camp next NBA season and to tell the coach, I am a six-foot-nine black man. My name is LeBron James. Like, I can think that, I can believe that, but then the question is, what does it mean to be LeBron James? Uh, Clearly, I cannot define it. Clearly, I cannot objectively tell you that that is true. So I'm going to be hauled out by security, maybe put in a mental institution, if I insist on thinking that I'm six foot nine, I'm a black man, and my name is LeBron James. There is nothing about that statement that is objectively true. And the same is true for gender. If you were born a man, you're not a woman. And if you were born a woman, you're not a man. If you were born a man, I'm going to call you he. And if you were born a woman, I'm going to call you she. Because God alone decides who and what that is. Now, Paul encountered an Ephesian Roman culture that falsely attributed divinity to deaf, dumb, powerless idols, things. And the gospel encounters an American culture in which people have said, I am the decisive arbiter of all that is true. No, you're not. God's Word is. The attribute of creational authority belongs to Him and Him alone. So to believe that anyone else has it, that's essentially idolatry. It's probably the worst kind. Number two, worship. Idolatry is also assigning to something or someone else the worth and value that belongs exclusively to God. So it's not just happening at the belief level. It's not just a belief that something that isn't God is, or that has God's divine exclusive attributes. It's also worship. It's also ascribing to that thing the worth, the value, and the glory that is due God alone. Notice what Demetrius says, remember, about Artemis. This gospel that Paul is preaching is going to strip her of her magnificence, of the glory the worth, the value that we have attributed to her. 
years ago, I was house-sitting uh, for a physician, a guy named Dr. John, and uh, Carrie and I did not have kids at the time, and so it was really fun, and, and we lived in this tiny little apartment, and he was a rich doctor, and so he just kind of had this big, sprawling place, and he said, hey, we'll be there for a couple months, and so you guys just take care of the place. He gave us a list, and one, the first thing that was on the list was, one of the things that was on the list was to go around each night and just make sure that all the doors were closed and all the windows were shut and locked and that the place was just locked up, that no one could break in. So I did that. Now, the first night I did that, I made my rounds in the house around to check all the windows and the doors, and I found this door to this room, a very large room downstairs. So I went down there. I opened the door to see what was in there because I was being nosy. <laughs> and, uh, and there was a giant pile. I mean, it was huge. It was almost my height, 5'11". I'm not 6'9", I'm 5'11". And so it was almost this high like, of just stuff, just junk, actually. It looked like stuff they were going to either throw out, take to the thrift store, or sell in a yard sale. And right there on the pile was a guitar case. And it was an old guitar case. It wasn't like yours. It wasn't like a nice, plush guitar case. It was a chipboard case. Back then, you could have bought one for about $15 or $20. And it was old, and it was chipped up, and it had rusty latches. And I decided, I wonder what he's got in there. Now, at the time, I was really into guitars. At the time, I really, really liked uh, fine, handmade, solid wood guitars. Some of them can, they can be very expensive, so I thought, he's probably just got an old piece of junk, plywood Yamaha guitar in there. And so I opened the top of it, and there was like, oh, it, it, it was this pre-war Martin guitar. And it looked like to me that it had never been played. It just had rusty strings on it. That's the only thing. And, it w and if you know anything about guitars, a pre-war Martin, holy smokes. And it was in great condition and had this beautiful pearl and abalone, like appointments all over the guitar. And I knew, I was like, oh, I, I ran up. I took it very carefully. I took it upstairs and laid it on the couch. And then I called Dr. John. I said, what do you know about this guitar? He said, I don't know anything about it. I just know it's been in our family for a long time. I don't, he goes, why? What's going on with the guitar? I said, man, this guitar is really worth something. I said, let me look it up. Let me call you back. I did. I looked it up, and I went upstairs to their, where their computer was. I, 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 this was like 1998, so it took me a half an hour to look it up. <laughs> Finally, the internet came up. My 2,400 baud per minute modem, and... Um, and so I finally, I was able to look it up, and I went downstairs. I said, I think you could get between eight to $12,000 for this guitar. He said, what? I go, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Now, the guitar had worth and value to the people who were willing to pay that. But the guitar doesn't have any innate value. The guitar is worth nothing. It was worth almost nothing to Dr. John. He did not know its worth. He did not know its value. Now, the difference between the guitar and God is that that guitar, like a work of art, is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. But God is intrinsically worthy. God, worth comes with the deal. Glory comes with the deal. When you get God, when you discover God, your only job is to ascribe the worth and the value that is already due his name. And this is exactly what the psalmist does in Psalm 29. He says, ascribe ascribe a tribute to the Lord, the glory that is due His name, the worth and the value. Worship the Lord and the splendor of His holiness. Worship the Lord, why? Because He is splendorous. He is holy. He is astonishing. He's glorious. Isaiah 42, 8, says, I am the Lord, God says to Isaiah, 
that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Why? Because there isn't any other. There isn't anything you could possibly praise that is this praiseworthy. God alone is glorious and the splendor of His holiness. I love this picture in Revelation 4.11. Revelation 4.11. This is our Lord and God. This is the 24 elders surrounding the throne. You who are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Do you see the only one who is worthy of your belief that He is God, the only one who is worthy of your appraisal, your praise is God because He alone is the Creator. He alone determines what the purpose and the function and the design of this world is. So idolatry happens when we falsely believe that something is God that isn't, and idolatry happens when we transfer the glory that is due God alone to something else that isn't worthy. However, the most visible expression of idolatry, especially in our Western culture, is at the level of allegiance. Number three, allegiance. What do we mean here? What do we mean here? Well, allegiance has to do with idolatry, which is devotion of our lives to an unworthy competitor. Now, God has lots of rival, rival gods. God has lots of rivals. And these things can take the shape of allegiances that now compete with something that God requires of us. There's something unique to God that requires a unique expression of devotion and allegiance to Him. And God, uh, God has and does encourage our loyalty to other people and other things. So if you're a spouse, you're supposed to be loyal to your spouse, right? So if you're a member of a local church, you're supposed to be loyal to that local church, committed some of you sign non-competing agreements in your employment contracts with your employer. The attribute of allegiance or loyalty is a praiseworthy attribute. It's a communicable attribute. It's something God has shared with us and He does expect of us. But there is an aspect of our devotion that belongs solely to God. And it belongs solely to God because He alone is supremely God. He alone is supremely worthy. And He calls us to exclusive worship. Jesus said it this way. He said, you cannot serve two masters. You can't have two gods. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money or the pursuit of pleasure or leisure or the pursuit of radical independence, thinking that you are God and you are your own authority. Nope. You cannot serve God and money, but you can serve God with money. You can serve God with money, but you can't serve God and money. You can serve God with your pleasure, but you cannot serve God and pleasure. You and I can serve God within our leisure or in the expression of our freedom, but we cannot serve them both as God. God will have no other rivals. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness to bow down before him, this was, this was pretty bold here. Jesus responded in Matthew 4.10. He said, get away from me, Satan. Notice the urgency of that statement. Get Get away from me. And this is what we are to say to false idols that seduce us to come and worship them. We are to say, no, get away from me. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and you shall serve him only. That's Deuteronomy 6.13. This is also one of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, the, this last week, Alan Gunn and I were having breakfast and we sat down and we were having a very nice conversation and a gentleman who, who uh, 
wanted to meet us, uh, came up to our table, and uh, he was an older gentleman, he was a veteran, he came up to our table and just sort of crashed, he just sort of blundered into our conversation. And so we were very kind, we wanted to use it as an opportunity to invite him to church, and in fact we did. And so as we were sitting there talking, uh, we really couldn't get a word in edgewise. So 15, 20 minutes later, this guy's still standing at our table, kind of just chatting with us, and then Alan just just grabbed the conversation and moved it. He said, hey, have, have, I want you to meet our senior pastor at our church. <laughs> and he said, church? And then I said, you know where our church is? It's over on South Fifth West. You know where that is? He said, no. And then he began to tell us that he was a Christian, that he believed in God. He was a spiritualist, whatever that means, whatever he thinks that means. And then we said, hey, man, come and visit us. If you're ever coming through town, come visit us. He said, I'll never come there, especially in the fall. We said, why? He's because in the fall, that's when football's on. Now, this guy did not articulate to me a belief system in which he thought a different God held God's attributes. He did not communicate to us uh, a system of worship where he was attributing the glory and the honor and the worth and value that was due God alone to something else. But at the allegiance level, he was telling me who his God was in the fall. I literally had a conversation with someone just like this uh, a few years back. Where I said, hey, man, we haven't seen you in a while. He goes, well, you know, in the fall, football's on. I go, oh, okay, so football is your God? He's like, ha, 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 ha. I'm like, I'm not joking. I said, well, what about the winter? Surely you could come in the winter. He goes, you know, we ski all the time in the winter. We hardly can ever get away from skiing. I go, oh, what about the spring? He goes, you know, we, we get out, we visit family in the spring. So we're never here. I go, oh, okay, what about the summer? He goes, well, summer, we're camping, so you probably won't see me again for a while. And you know what he was telling me? He was telling me who his God is. He was telling me that when God says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, that God's command didn't matter to him. It didn't matter. What mattered was his personal leisure, his personal schedule. So you and I can have lots of rival gods at the allegiance level, something that is competing, competing with God, something that God requires of us. So what's the application today? Well, let me give you a few. The first one is this, is that God's truth reveals the existence and presence of an idol in my life. So I have some. Do you? Do you know what yours are? I know what mine are. I know, I know what they are. I can tell you right now, my idol is, uh, this, this sounds fairly benign, but it's study. I mean, I love nothing more than to have looked back at the last 10 hours and ha have gotten my brain into something really heavy and to just come up for air. And there are times when the Holy Spirit has to whisper into my heart, uh, did, you, did you study for my sake or your sake? Was I in the midst of that? Do you love academia? Do you love the journal articles and the commentaries? Do you love that more than you love me? We have to be careful, folks. I would never say that something has God's attributes. I would never ascribe worth and value to something else. But at the allegiance level, I might have an idol. We have to check ourselves. And sometimes that happens. Oftentimes, the way we discern it is to get in the word. When God says, listen, if you have something against your brother, here's what you do. You, you leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled. That's so hard to obey because it's so hard to go and be reconciled. It's easier to just come to church. But God's truth reveals the existence and presence of an idol in my life. God's word will reveal it. God's truth also realigns us to right relationship with God. It doesn't just reveal it. It puts us back in our place. You know what happens when God reveals that we have an idol? Here's what it reminds us. We're not the creator. 
We're not the final arbiters of all that is true. (laughs) We're not the wellspring of truth in the world. It reminds us that we're the creature, not the creator. And it puts us right, it realigns us in right relationship with God. We are image bearers sent into the world to represent His sovereign reign. And then God's truth requires a response. It always requires a response. It doesn't just realign us, it requires a response from you. Look at Demetrius and the mob. Look at them. Verses 18 through 29. It says, when they heard this, they were filled with rage. And they begin to cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. Although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincials, uh, provincial officials of Asia, like Asia was saying, hey man, don't go in there. <laughs> you know, like, don't, don't go in there. They sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. And some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander, the believer there, the Jewish believer, after they pushed him to the front, motioning with his hand as if he were going to give a speech. Alexander wanted to <clears throat> make a defense, his defense to the people, but, they, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they shouted this and chanted this for two hours until someone could calm them down. So what are their responses? Well, they chose, they chose rage. They chose rage and not repentance. It, it can be infuriating, man. It can be, it can be infuriating for someone to tell you, hey, listen, you have an idol in your life. Listen, this thing that you think is true or you think is worthy of worship or this thing that you think is worth your allegiance isn't worth it. It isn't. And we get angry. And it can cause us anger, and that's what they choose. And they were confused. This is a mass of confusion. I mean, the people who are there who know what they're doing, they're there to riot. They're there to string Paul and his companions up. They want to put a stop to this gospel no matter what. But there are people who have just kind of gotten caught up in this, and they've come out into the street, and they're like, hey, man, what, what's, what's going on? And they just like walk on down to the amphitheater. They're like, yeah, yeah, what that guy said. And they're confused. They don't even know what they're protesting. They don't even know what is going on. And confusion, oftentimes what can happen when the truth comes into our life, when it penetrates our heart and it tells us what is true, we can be discombobulated. We can be, we can be very disoriented about that because we find out that this thing that we worship, this thing we pledged our lives to, this thing we were devoted to, it turns out it's not God. And it can cause a little bit of confusion. And then they attempted to shout the truth down. Look at verse 34. They all shouted in unison. They all shouted in unison. They all shouted for two hours something that was not true. Listen, you can be wrong at the top of your lungs. You can be wrong at the top of your voice, and you can be wrong in a crowd who shares your opinion. And I'm here to tell you, folks, I got to tell you this. I got to be the prophet. I got to speak it. Our culture is wrong. They're dead wrong. And they may be lighting up the cable news channels, the Twitter traditional media, politics, the halls of power, especially academia, our universities, they may be shouting, great is this truth of America, and they're wrong 
because they're the creature, not the creator. And God is the one who determines what your purpose, he's the one who determines what your significance, what your function, what your identity is. And our response has to be instead to believe and repent. Now the Ephesian Christians, this is just what they do. The Ephesian Christians believe the gospel and they devote themselves for three years with Paul in the lecture hall of Tyrannus to studying the word, to realigning their thinking to God's truth. And that's what God calls us to do. That's what God has called us to do. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Band's gonna come back up. You're here today and you realize, oh man, I've been believing in a false God. I have held a false idol in my heart. No harm, no foul. <laughs> the gospel that is, a, is at odds with your idol. So repent. Confess it. God, we, we confess to you that we have had allegiances that have pulled us away from you. We, effect, we confess that we have not served God with money, but we have often served God with money or with our pleasure or with our leisure. And God, we confess it, and so we turn away from it, and we turn to the one true God, and, and we say, Lord, you, you are God. If you're here this morning and you have ascribed the worth and the glory that is due God alone, would you just confess it? God, we confess that we have given your glory to other things that are not worthy we confess that, Lord. And if you're here this morning and you realize you've got an idol, a competing devotion, a rival God, again, no harm, no foul. Join the club. We're all recovering idolaters. And you tried to serve God in money rather than serving God with money. You tried to serve God in pleasure or leisure or whatever it has been. Would you confess your sin right now? God, I confess my love for that thing has taken over my life. I confess that my need for that thing that you blessed me with has taken me over. And right now, I, I am realigned. You are the creator. I'm the image bearer. You're the, you are God, and I am not. And maybe this morning, you just don't know, and you need a little more time. That's okay, too. Will you just make the commitment in your heart right now? You're going to get in God's word. You're going to open up Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and begin to read through the Gospels and let Jesus' teaching fall on your ears fresh and begin to reform your thinking. Will you do it? Commit to it. God, we do commit to these things as a congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.